This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, October 14th, 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. Fake judging versus judicial engagement. That's a dichotomy presented in Clark Neely's new book, Terms of Engagement. He argues that when judges don't engage with facts and with the language of the Constitution, they're not doing their jobs. We spoke last week. In your book, you refer to fake judging. You refer to fake judicial review. So what are those things and what would real judicial review and real judging look like? Well, in any constitutional case, you can have real judging or fake judging. The hallmarks of real judging are a genuine attempt to determine the constitutionality of the government's conduct by determining whether it's pursuing a truly constitutionally permissible end and whether it is employing constitutionally permissible means to advance that end. Uh, And that determination needs to be made on the basis of real facts supported by real evidence. If that's what's going on in a case, then you have real judging. What we have all too often, however, is fake judging. And fake judging is embodied in something called the rational basis test, which is nothing of the sort. It's actually the rationalize a basis test, where the goal is not really to determine what the government is up to and whether it's legitimate, but to see if the government and the judge working together can make up some legitimate explanation or justification for the government's actions. And there's no need, for example, for the government to support its factual assertions with evidence. Uh, There's no need for it to come into court with a sincere explanation of what it's doing. It's just basically a creative endeavor to see if a constitutional basis can be rationalized for the government's actions. And that's fake judging. And uh, more broadly, though, this rational basis test is part of a range of acceptable tests or levels of scrutiny as they're called to be applied. Uh, Given how deeply that is throughout the judicial system in the United States, how do we get past that? Right. Well, the important thing to realize, and I try to explain this in the book, is that contrary to what law students are taught in law schools, they're generally taught there are three standards of review or three tiers of scrutiny. You've got strict scrutiny, which is what it sounds like. It's a rigorous uh, evaluation of the government's actions. You have intermediate scrutiny, which is a somewhat more relaxed but still genuine assessment of the government's uh, actions. And then you've got rational basis review, which I just described. The important thing to know there is it's not really three standards of scrutiny. It's just two. There's what the courts sometimes call heightened scrutiny, which is just a euphemism for real or genuine scrutiny, and that includes both strict and intermediate. And then there's fake or make-believe scrutiny, uh, which is rational basis review and others. But essentially, the hallmarks of fake judging make-believe judging are, as I just described, there's no genuine effort to, to determine what the government is really up to and whether it's employing constitutionally permissible means to do it. The real project in a rational basis case is simply to look for some way to reach a predetermined re- result, which is we're going to let the government get away with this, whatever it is they're doing. And so that's the distinction for me. It's not – we don't need to get hung up on tiers of scrutiny or standards of review. It's just real and fake. Now, uh, Ed Whalen uh, in – talking about your book at the uh, book event that we hosted today, sort of drew a distinction between your idea of judicial engagement and these other ideas of judicial passivism, not pacifism, and judicial activism. And and what do you make of of his argument that maybe the distinction uh, that you make is not 
totally fair. Uh, I reject it. Um, you know, Ed seems to think that the terms judicial activism and judicial passivism are somehow more precise than judicial abdication and judicial engagement. Nothing could be further from the truth because as he himself acknowledges, in order to know what is or is not an example of judicial activism, you have to make a value judgment, namely whether the court is wrongfully setting aside uh, the result of a political process. Um, so you actually have to have a theory of the Constitution and a value judgment about whether the Constitution does or does not permit a given law in order to know whether uh, it was activist for the court to strike it down. Now, many, many people can, reasonable people can disagree about what the Constitution permits and forbids, at least in some settings. The reason I say that judicial engagement is a much more precise term, and it is, is that it describes with some real precision a particular way of approaching cases that really doesn't have anything to do with overarching value judgments the way judicial activism does. It's simply a, a kind of an empirical description of a fake or make-believe approach to judging where in some cases you care about evidence. In other cases, you don't. In some cases, you require the government to support its factual assertions with, with proof, with facts. In other cases, you don't. In some cases, the judge remains strictly neutral and requires the government to do all of its own work in justifying the law. In other cases, judicial neutrality goes out the window and the judge actually helps the government think of justifications for the law. I think that's actually a, a, a quite a precise and quite an empirical uh, way of approaching the question of judicial review, much more so than these very value-laden terms like judicial activism and judicial passivism. Uh, one of the examples that you used uh, related to that, you said you've become a fan recently of coconut water. Right. and. Uh, Depending on what you're trying to argue, right. uh, on a government restriction, you have very different levels of evidence that would be required. Well, that's exactly right. So the illustration that I use in the book and earlier today is if the government wants to ban advertising of coconut water, then real judicial review applies, real judging, judicial engagement. And so the government is going to be required to prove that there's a problem, that it's come up with a, uh, a regulation that actually addresses that problem and that it you know, there really wasn't any way to do it more narrowly. By contrast, because the Supreme Court considers commercial activity to be a much less important right than commercial speech, if you ban the sale of coconut water entirely, well, that's just an economic regulation according to the Supreme Court, a non-fundamental right and therefore rational basis review applies and all of that goes out the window. The court won't make any effort to determine what's really going on. It will allow the government to make factual assertions for which the government has no evidence and if necessary, the judge will even get involved by helping the government think of justifications for the law if the government attorneys are not creative enough to do it themselves. And again, that's just not real judging, not by any stretch of the imagination and so that's the distinction real judging, judicial engagement, and fake judging, judicial abdication. You point to the Obamacare decision as sort of a landmark of this going poorly, uh, right. how judges were very interested in preserving institutional structures over and above what the problems were right. in the case. Can you talk about like specifically what your, your, your issue is with that? Sure. Uh, you know, look, um, the issue in the Obamacare decision was whether the Constitution authorizes the federal government to require American citizens to purchase government-approved health care. The government advanced basically two arguments in support of the proposition that it does. The first was the tried and true, the old reliable commerce clause. This is the argument the government trots out, the federal government trots out whenever it wants to justify anything. It just regulates the conduct 
and then sort of invents a connection to interstate commerce, works backwards from there. In this particular case, uh, they couldn't sell that idea to five justices. Very unusual, by the way. Um, there's only been two cases since the New Deal in which the um, Supreme Court did not sign on to this kind of infinitely elastic vision of the Commerce Clause. But they were unsuccessful. This was the third time um, in 75 years they'd not been able to do it. So, but the case nevertheless came out in favor of the federal government because the Chief Justice joined the four traditional liberal members of the Supreme Court in um, – well, they believed that it was the commerce power, but the Chief Justice basically supplied the necessary vote to say, you know what, it's an exercise of the taxing power. So that when we require you to buy health insurance and then impose a financial penalty for failing to do so, that's not really a financial penalty and it's not really a requirement that you buy insurance. It's an option that you have and if you don't want to exercise that option, then you pay a slightly higher tax. It was a complete recharacterization of the law and in fact a fundamental rewriting of the statute for the purpose of upholding it. And I don't think it was an example of real judging. I think it was an example of a judge determining what the outcome of the case would be, namely that Obamacare would be found constitutional and reverse engineering a decision. That is a classic example in my view of judicial abdication, the opposite of which is judicial engagement. Uh, one small area of disagreement between you and Ed Whalen at the, at the book forum was about stare decisis, the idea that uh, previous decisions by the courts should be given uh, serious scrutiny before overturning them. Right. Um, how does that idea survive in a world where real judging takes over? Well, it's, a, it's an excellent question. I, I'm not sure that Ed and I disagreed necessarily uh, because really what you're talking about is, is a very um, soft and flexible kind of a, uh, a standard here, namely how willing or unwilling should courts today be to reverse decisions from prior years if they think they're wrong. Um, I do think there's some value and I think most people would agree there's some value to consistency, to predictability, to a rule of law that doesn't change with the, you know, the, the, the composition of the Supreme Court. At the same time, there are Supreme Court decisions that are so obviously wrong and that are doing so much damage that uh, there's no the, – the idea that stare decisis or you know, the weight of precedent means that they shouldn't be overruled to me doesn't carry much water. And, and an example that I give, of course, is the Kelo decision upholding the use of eminent domain uh, to take property and give it to private individuals for demonstrably private purposes. Uh, that was an obviously wrong decision. It's having terrible effects uh, just as the dissenting justices predicted that it would and stare decisis should not provide any basis for failing to overrule that. In fact, the Supreme Court should overrule Kelo at the very first opportunity. Sad to say they've already passed up several and that's unfortunate. Clark Neely is a senior attorney at the Institute for Justice. You can watch a forum for his book, Terms of Engagement, at our website, cato.org.